2019, Peter joined the ECC Fellowship of Thought Leaders um, and presented a, a perspective on geopolitics through the intersection of geography, demography, energy, and trade. His irreverent approach is something that I like to frame as an artful way of humanizing the most charismatic personalities around the globe. His keen eye for global affairs is regularly sought after by Fortune 500 companies, trade associations, policymakers, and government agencies at all levels. He's also a critically acclaimed author with his recent book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, hitting bookstands uh, in June of this year. If you have not had a chance to read that 500-page monstrosity, uh, let me give you a, a two-word um, Cliff Notes version, Hunger Games. With a world pandemic um, and a war conflict bracketing the three years since we've last seen Peter on this stage, I am confident we are in for a very invigorating conversation. May the odds be ever in our favor. Please join me in welcoming Peter. Hey everybody, it's been a long time. Everything before COVID for me is a little hazy, so if I miss names, I apologize. Um, what I have discovered since the world reopened back in like February is that there's two years of not just pent up demand for seeing people in, in person, but two years of pent up entertainment budget. So between the war, the book, and the reopening, I gave 100 presentations between February 15th and July 15th which means I wasn't sober for five months. Uh, so if some of this seems like a fever dream, you know, you're probably not too far off, but let's go ahead and jump right into it. We need to talk about the war. And, and for the folks handling the IT system, if you could just leave the slides up, because there's a lot to go through. Okay, on the left, we've got a climate map of the Russian space, and it's, it's on its side, so if you have to do this, I'm not gonna judge. In the middle, the green, that's the Russian wheat belt. That's where you live if you're in Russia. That's 99% of the population. It's not so cold that your nose will freeze off if you go outside on October 1st. You wait till November, you're screwed, but October, you're okay. If you go to the right, to the north, to the blue, that's tundra, that's tegai. Nobody lives there. If you go to the left, to the south, that's desert. No one lives there. Now, when the Russians look at this, they get really depressed because of the beige wide open territory that's completely economically non-viable, but brackets everywhere that they live. Territory where it's very easy to run a Mongol horde or a German tank division through. Completely indefensible. On the right, you've got a population center. You can see it lines up with the green. So the Russian way of dealing with this isn't great. You can't even build a, a road network through this territory. The economic activity per acre is so low. It's rail or nothing. So what they try to do is expand past the green through the base to get to these geopolitical barriers, mountains, deserts, seas, and then forward position static military forces and the access points between. When the Soviet system existed, they controlled every single one of those access points. When the Soviet system fell, the Russians went from controlling all of them to one. Everything that Putin has done since has been about getting a military footprint in each and every one of those zones. This is Nagorno-Karabakh, this is the Crimea War, this is the Georgian War, this is the Kazakh intervention. They now have footprints in five. 
Unfortunately for Ukraine, it's not that Ukraine is in an access point, but it's on the way to two of them. So the Russian goal here has always been not just to conquer all of Ukraine, but then to use Ukraine as a military launch pad to those two next sections. And those next sections include Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. NATO allies all. This is how the Russians see the world. They see this as a fight for their existential survival, and they are not wrong. Now, who here is not from Texas? Oh, more than I thought. Texans are friendly. Texas is not as big as they think. Just the scale of what the Russians feel they need to do to survive is mammoth. It's something we just have a hard time processing as Westerners. So let's talk about where we are right now. Now, the war obviously started with this massive thunder run to Kiev when the Russians tried to believe their own propaganda that the Ukrainians were going to welcome them in. And when it didn't work, when on the third day of the war, that 40-mile-long train of equipment stalled on the road to Kiev, different countries drew different conclusions. In the United States, we're like, holy crap, the Russians don't know how to fight a modern war. We can totally kick their ass in a conflict. And then all the generals and the admirals had a nap and some bourbon and really thought about it, like, holy crap, the Russians don't know how to fight a war. We could totally kick their ass. But they see this as a war for their existential survival, which means that every tool is on the table. And if we get to the point where the Russians can overwhelm Ukraine and then come for NATO, we know we will have to fight them. And we know we will beat them on the conventional battlefield easily. And we know they will use nukes. So we can't let that happen. So every piece of equipment that we can train the Ukrainians on, they get as soon as we can possibly get it to them. That was our lesson. The Russian lesson was it okay. Our propaganda was wrong. They're not gonna welcome us in. And that means the Ukrainians themselves are a problem. And so we're gonna fight the war we know how to fight with artillery, and we're gonna advance slowly through eastern Ukraine and the Donbass, and we are going to specifically target every piece of civilian infrastructure we see, especially agricultural infrastructure. Because if we destroy the capacity of this territory to support a population, it will self-separate into two groups. One group will become refugees, they will leave, we will never have to worry about them again. Anyone who stays is clearly a fighter and they can be shot on sight. So slow artillery advance, you bring in the Wagner mercenaries to kill anyone who's left. We don't know exactly how many people are dead in Ukraine right now, it's probably about a half a million. We now believe that at least another half a million has been forcibly taken from the occupied territories and redistributed into Siberian territories. This is about the destruction of Ukraine as a nation. Now, what's going on this week? For the last two months, the Ukrainians have been advertising that they're about to launch an assault on Kyrgyzstan, and that is right over here. It's the only territory that the Russians have grabbed that is on the west side of the Dnieper River. And in anticipation for that, the Russians have relocated roughly a tenth of their forces from the Eastern Front to the Kyrgyzstan province. That assault began on Monday. And you'll notice that there are two bridges, only two, between eastern Ukraine and western Ukraine 
in this part of the country. You have to go all the way up to Zapornista, which is up here, uh, to get to the next bridge. So two access points. All the troops have to come and go through those bridges. All the supplies have to come and go through those two bridges. Well, the Ukrainians have damaged both so that heavy equipment can't go them at all. In fact, on one of the bridges, the road span has now been destroyed. So the Russians now have a huge troop concentration in this area with no support and no resupply. It's too soon to say that the Ukrainians are going to win this, but as of day four, it seems to be going pretty well for them. But then the Russians also were subject to a surprise attack about 40 hours ago when the Ukrainians opened up a second front back in the Donbass in the east where those red arrows are because that's where the Russians pulled their forces from. So two active fronts right now. If, 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 if the Ukrainians are successful here, their next target is gonna be right there. This is the Kerch Strait Bridge. This is the only rail connection between Russia proper and the occupied territories. All those dotted lines are rail lines, and you'll notice that everything that's in uh, the Donbass doesn't connect to the southern front or to Crimea. It all has to come in through Kerch. If they can destroy that one bridge, the Russians, who don't function well with trucks, who have to have rail, suddenly don't. There's one more little aspect. Take a look at Crimea. Look at this blue line. That's a canal. That supplies all the water for their entire agricultural system. Two and a half million people in Crimea. It's the biggest concentration of Russian forces. The sluice gate is in Kyrgyzstan. If the Ukrainians succeed here, they will have turned Crimea from a strategic launching point with the primary rail connection to being at the very end of a very long and a very exposed road link. Russia fights until it can't. It has never backed down from a war without at least a half a million battlefield deaths. Right now, we're probably only at about 50,000. But if the Ukrainians can pull this off, you're looking at two and a half million Russians in Crimea, plus the entire military force suddenly be completely exposed and largely unsupplied. If Ukraine is going to win, this is how it's going to happen. Will they pull it off? No idea. The Russians have used every opportunity in this conflict to underperform. This should have been over four months ago. But the Ukrainians have stepped up, the West has stepped up, and the Russians have missed every opportunity. So this is, this is a fair fight now. That doesn't mean it doesn't have implications. If you take the three belligerents together, treat them as a single economic entity, which I think we really need to in wartime, Everything in the first column, they are collectively the world's largest supplier, second largest in the second, and so on. Now, each one of these is an hour-long presentation, so I'm gonna talk about three real quick that are not at the core of your world, and then we're gonna move on to your world. So, first of all, the world's largest wheat exporter has invaded the world's fifth largest wheat exporter and is cognizant about its active destruction of the entire agricultural base. Ukraine is going to end up being a food importer sometime next year, most likely. That is gonna have catastrophic consequences throughout the global system, but it's nothing compared to what's happening with fertilizer. Russia is the world's largest supplier. Russia plus Belarus specifically provide 40% of the world's potash. Natural gas is the primary input for nitrogen fertilizers. And South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, 
South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Australia, every single country in all of those regions imports almost all of their potash and all of their phosphate. This is how we get a famine. We have been extraordinarily lucky this year. Mother Nature has been very kind. There are record harvests throughout most of the world to compensate for the loss of Ukraine. But the damage to the fertilizer system has already been done, and we will hit, get hit with that next year. Building new phosphate systems takes a decade. We will not recover from this quickly. And by the time we have recovered from it, we will have lost a few hundred million people. Neon, you guys have all seen Star Wars, right? Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, wrong Star Wars. Not like lightsabers, and, but um, Reagan. Back at the 1983 Reykjavik summit, Gorbachev and Reagan almost got rid of nuclear weapons. And almost on his way out the door, Gorbachev was like, oh yeah, yeah and there's just one, one catch to make this all happen. You have to get rid of Star Wars. And Reagan's like, nope. So it kind of fell apart, and we went from there. Uh, Gorbachev went back to the Soviet Union. He was like, okay, this is the future of great power competition, space lasers that provide a missile shield. So they didn't have the technology to do the space lasers, but it was still the Soviet Union, a lot of power, so they put a lot of effort into building out the supply chain that they would need once they stole the technology. Part of that's neon. You use neon to focus the laser aperture. Soviet Union fell apart, but not before the system was built. Today, we use neon to focus the laser apertures for semiconductor fabrication facilities. Here's the problem. 80% of the world's neon comes from the former Soviet space. Oh, it's worse than that. Because in Russia, at their steel foundries, you have a first stage, what's called an air separation unit, that breaks the air into three chunks, oxygen, nitrogen, and everything else. And then you use the first two tanks to blow into the system to get the temperature gradient you're after. That third tank, everything else, is then sent to a second, more advanced facility where it separates out the argon and the helium and the neon. The steel facilities are all in southern Russia. They're losing access to global markets because of sanctions and the war. A lot of them have shut down. The second stage facilities are all in either Odessa, which hasn't had reliable electricity in four months, or Mariupol, where it was leveled. We've already lost 80% of global supply. Which means that pretty soon we get to decide where we put our neon for purposes of making semiconductors. The other 20%, that's all in China. Now, China doesn't make the high-end microprocessors. They do the low-end. So if you want like a margarita machine that sings when the slush is at the right churn, that's a Chinese chip. You want to do something useful, that's an American chip. <laughs> and since the Chinese now control all of the world's remaining supply, what do you think they're going to prioritize? Now, the technical economic term for this sort of situation is fuck. Okay, that's a taste of the problems everyone else has to deal with. Let's talk about yours. What we've got here is a map of the physical infrastructure for the energy sector in the former Soviet space. Green is oil, red is natural gas. For starters, we're going to talk about oil, specifically the ports. These are the two facilities, Primorsk in the north, Novorossiysk in the south, that are the two largest export points for Russian and former Soviet crude. 
here's the problem. The southern one is in a war zone. That makes it a little sketchy in terms of insurance. Speaking of insurance, you guys get insurance more than most crowds. You cannot have a ship go in or out of any port or any congested waterway without an insurance policy. The European Union, the United States, have made it impossible for Russian chartered ships to get insurance. And as of January of next year, that applies to all Russian cargoes. Which means the Russians have to self-insure their own stuff. They don't have the facilities to do that. So if one, one ship is hijacked, confiscated, violates an OSHA regulation, something, that's five million barrels a day that suddenly can't sail. And this is not Texas. This isn't even Alberta. Russian crude comes out of the permafrost. And for those of you who are from the north, not the Texans, obviously, you know that in winter, as long as you're moving, you will live. But if you stop, you will freeze to death. Same thing with Russian crude in the permafrost. If the flow stops, the crude turns to gel, and the water that comes up as a byproduct freezes in the pipes. And everything from the wellhead to the pumps themselves cracks and you have to replace the whole damn thing. The last time this happened, it was 1992, and it took the Russians 30 years to bring it all back online. They only finished last December. So we could have Latvia grab one oil tanker and this all just stops, five million barrels a day. talk about the Chinese. On the left, the little rainbow graphic there, that's where crude comes to the Northeast Asian space. Purple is from the Americas, yellow is from West Africa, blue is from the former Soviet space, and the big old red, that's from the Persian Gulf. On the right is where West African crude goes. Red goes primary, I'm sorry, orange goes, I can't colorblind all of a sudden. Green goes primarily to the European space, and then that lower one of the yellows goes primary to Asia. What has happened because of self-sanctions in Europe is the Europeans have stopped using Russian crude wherever they can, and instead they're gobbling up most of what's available out of West Africa. They're taking stuff that used to come for us, it's not a big deal for us anymore, a lot of that is light sweet, we've got plenty of that. What this has done is reordered crude flows around the world. It used to be that most consumers would use the crude that was relatively proximate. That's what the refineries were designed for. Now, everything is stretched out because the Europeans are taking stuff that used to go to China, and since the Chinese are at the very end of the world's largest, longest supply lines, they don't have the economic or military power to project out and change that, but the Europeans do, especially when it involves their former colonies. So, are the Europeans going further for crude? Yeah. Africa's farther away than the former Soviet states. But it's nothing compared to how far the Russians need to go now. Because they're now getting an extra million barrels a day from Russia, I'm sorry, yeah. It's nothing compared to what the Chinese have to do. They're now getting an extra million barrels a day from the Russians, but that crude has to come out of Novorossiysk and Primorsk, go to a super tanker raft off Portugal to do sea-to-sea transfers to super tankers, and then sail the long way around Africa and Southeast Asia. 
The vulnerability of that system is extreme. This is several orders of magnitude more vulnerable than the supply lines we had during World War II when people were actually shooting at these things. Again, one thing goes wrong, Latvia. This all falls apart. We might push it. Here's everybody's favorite energy minister, Ms. Granholm. She made it very clear a couple weeks ago that if American refiners and gasoline and diesel distributors do not prioritize the American market, the US government will make sure that they do. Now, in the 2015 omnibus, omnibus bill, uh, President Obama gained the power for the White House to summarily end all American oil exports with a stroke of a pen. In any environment where we have a shortage of crude because of Russian losses, especially if it's five million, you can expect within a matter of hours that the Biden administration is gonna slam the door shut on export capacity in order to keep the American market super saturated, in order to keep American crude prices more affordable. He, like his predecessor, is a populist. Now, what Granholm said she wanted actually was the refined product. She doesn't have the power to do that. Biden does not have the power to do that. But if you trap the crude in the American market and force it to just go to American refiners, it achieves most of what she's after. Is it a perfect fix? Of course not. And we know for sure that the Biden administration will approach a policy like this with deliberation and consultation, just like they do with everything else. Be ready. It's coming. Now that, of course, is going to trigger a bit of a crude mismatch. Here are all of the world's major crude grades. If you're at the top left, you're light sweet. If you're at the bottom right, you're heavy sour. Everything in blue, that's American shale. It's all super light, it's all super sweet. That is what's going to be trapped here. On the bottom right, you see the orange, that's Russian Urals. That's what we're gonna lose. Five million days of moderate, heavy, moderate sour. Now, for those of you who are in the refining world and are having a heart attack right now, Yes, middle distillates are gonna be a bitch. You are the industry that is going to complain the most and the loudest, and reasonably so. And then you're gonna realize that this is not a passing thing, and you simply have to retool and expand your distillation capacity for the crude you have access to it. Because you're still gonna be able to import stuff if you want to, but you have to be able to do, deal with all this light sweet. So over the course of the next three years, you're probably in going to increase refining capacity by two or three million barrels a day. And I know you're like, oh, that's impossible. Think about what the price differential for these crudes is going to be in this environment. Losing five million barrels of heavy sour, being stuck with five million barrels of light sweet in an international environment where the U.S. is no longer contributing to global supplies. You're talking about a ceiling on crude prices of 50 to 80 here and a functional floor everywhere else of 150 to 200. You are going to bitch, you are going to moan, and then you are going to expand, and then you are going to laugh. It's the greatest expansion your industry will have ever seen. Could start tomorrow based on what happens in Latvia. Okay, back to this map. Now let's look at the red, the natural gas. Uh, with the, uh, the drama of the moment is Nord Stream. Now that is a subsea pipeline that goes directly from Russia under the Baltic all the way to Germany. It is their primary support. It is what allows their industry to function, and at the moment it is offline. The Russians have been jacking with it 
with ever more seriousness ever since they started having problems back post-Kiev. The problem is marginal supply. Energy prices, because energy demand is broadly inelastic, takes its entire pricing structure from whatever that last few percent is. The Russians, excuse me, the Germans, because of the Energiewende and the shutting down of nuclear plants, have removed a lot of their base load. And then the Russian stuff happened on top of that. And so almost all of their supply, the majority of the supply now is marginal. And so of course their prices are very, 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 very high. Now the problem in Germany versus the United States is not just the availability of supply. The problem is that we're a lot less interested in where our inputs come from. And being a large diversified economy like the United States, like NAFTA, means that a lot of things come from a lot of places and the margin can't demand what it wants like it can in Germany. Because in Germany, they take Russian cheap natural gas, they process that into petrochemicals, that is the foundation of their heavy and their medium manufacturing, including automotive. You remove that base material, the rest of the German manufacturing system collapses. And we're already seeing shutdowns at places like BASF. German manufacturing will be dead within a year and a half. I know that we're used to being more worried about China here, but Germany's not coming back. If the war ended tomorrow, it's probably already too late. We're now in a situation where the pipelines that flow through the war zones are Germany's only reliable supply. This is going to get significantly worse for them. Anyone use steel? Do we care about steel? Okay, working from left to right, you mine the iron ore, you throw it into a blast furnace, you get an intermediate product called pig iron, and then based on how good you are and what you need, you turn it into hot or cold rolled steel. Hot rolled is the ugly stuff, we use that for automobile frames and I-beams, places where you won't see it. Cold rolled is the pretty stuff, you use that for cladding and high-end uh, manufacturing. You guys are primarily interested in the hot rolled for pipes. Now here in the United States, again, we're pretty agnostic about where we get stuff. So we don't do a lot of the core blast furnace smelting. We will take someone else's pig iron and we will then turn that into our finished product. Now this means a couple of things. First of all, remember with neon, that means we don't even have air separation units because we don't even have the blast furnaces. So if we want a new neon supply, you're talking three years just to build out the physical infrastructure in the first place. Three years of going analog, fun. For pipes, we make about half of what we use, we import the other half. One of our largest suppliers of pipes used to be Russia. The half that we make ourselves is almost exclusively made with imported pig iron, of which three quarters of which comes from Russia and Ukraine. Now, Russia is obviously a political issue. Ukraine is a non-issue. The entire Ukrainian metals industry is offline. Either it's in a place like Zapernitsa, where the power is out, it's in a place like Donetsk, where it's been captured, or it's in a place like Mariupol, where it's been destroyed. We've lost about 10% of global steel capacity because of the war, and we've lost about three quarters of access to pig iron on a global scale. On the off chance you care about green tech, it's not 
as simple as most people think. What we've got here are the materials that go into various sorts of green tech. At the top, vehicles. At the bottom, power generation. It's about an order of magnitude more complicated in terms of sourcing the materials in the first place. And the things that have boxes around them, that's where Russia is a primary supplier. We can't have globally financially accessible volumes of fossil fuels without the Russians. And we absolutely cannot do the green transition without them. All right, one more minor issue before we get to the big stuff. <laughs> Let me give you the punchline first. This is China's last decade. Three big things. First of all, Chairman Xi has created a cult of personality that is so extreme, and he has shot the messenger literally so many times that no one wants to bring him any information. I mean, this is worse than what's going on with Putin. Putin insists that he is lied to and will get rid of anyone who tells him the truth. No one even wants to approach Chairman Xi because they have no idea what's going on in his head and how whatever fact they give him is going to play to the chorus. He has consolidated more power to himself than any leader in world history. More than Mao, more than the Chinese emperors of old, more than the Kim dynasty in North Korea, more than Donald Trump, more than anyone. And as a result, we're seeing policy collapses across the entire system. The two most dramatic, we had power outages that started last March. It's apparent that G didn't know they happened until September. We didn't get a policy to deal with it until November, and they're only now getting patched up. And of course, the other one is COVID. Now, we're in Texas. I'm going to assume there's a diversity of opinions on natural immunity versus vaccines. But I think in the quiet of our own homes in the dark, we will admit to ourselves, at least, that the other side may have a couple of relevant points. Right? Is that fair? In China, neither of these are options. Natural immunity isn't an option because the Chinese have, until now, fairly successfully kept COVID out of the population, so no one has natural immunity. And from the vaccine side, the Chinese vaccines don't work. They, they worked barely against the original wild strain out of Wuhan, and everyone in China has pretty much got that now. But then we had Alpha and Beta, and now Omicron, Delta, ThreatCon, Fuchsia 7, or wherever we are now, and they don't work at all. So if China were to open, you're talking about two to five million deaths a month for at least six months. And in a cult of personality system where the buck literally stops with the top guy, that is a regime ending event. So lockdowns are their only option. We've got about 90 million Chinese under hard lockdown right now, and about another 250 million under soft lockdown. You can't run a modern economy like that. The Germans are in recession because of energy. I would say that the Chinese would be in recession because of energy if they weren't in recession already because of COVID. So this is going to be the situation until the Chinese can catch up with a better vaccine that is domestically produced because they've spent the last two and a half years saying that the American ones make you magnetic and infertile. So they're not gonna import them. By the way, if you believe those things, that's Chinese propaganda. If you think they're gonna rewrite your DNA, that's Russian propaganda. <sighs> Next crisis. <laughs> Three years ago, the Chinese had an outbreak of something called African swine fever. It's basically Ebola for pigs. 
doesn't communicate to humans, thank God, but, you know, messy. <sighs> they say they wiped it out. If you look at a heat map of where cases are in East Asia, all of Chinese borders are raging with ASF, but there's not a single case within China. Yeah, right. In an information-controlled system that is a cult of personality that is having a medical crisis and flirting with an energy crisis, one of the few remaining pillars of legitimacy is food supply. The chances that they're gonna lose pork again are pretty high. The last time they had to wipe out two-thirds of their herd. All that's left in that situation is rice. Rice is the most phosphate-demanding crop humans grow. China's the world's largest supplier. They've shut their borders to exports. So just on top of everything with Ukraine, we're also losing, have lost, one of the largest things that allow us to keep eight billion people alive. This is the USS Ford. This is our newest supercarrier, most powerful military platform humans have ever built. By itself, one Ford class can take on any but the top seven air forces in the world. That assumes the Navy fights fair. The Navy never fights fair. The whole idea of the Navy is the ships can move, so you get to choose the time and the place of the conflict, which means it's not really the top seven, it's just the top three that a Ford couldn't beat, and one of those is ours. We're building four of these. To complement our pre-existing 10 Nimitz-class supercarriers, you want to knock off a country, this is the tool for the job. You want to patrol the global sea lanes to make commerce safe. Oh my God, this is a horrible choice because there's only four of them. They can only be in four places at a time. Instead, you need these bad boys, destroyers. You need hundreds of them, probably 800 to patrol the global sea lanes. We have 70. Even if the United States wanted to be the guarantor of global commerce, we no longer have the capacity. Western Hemisphere, sure, but the rest of the world, forget it. This is a straight-up population density map by state and province. The two quadrants in the west and the quadrant in the lower right, those three quadrants of the world are net exporters of food and energy and minerals. The, the remaining one, the top right, is a net importer of everything. In fact, you can narrow it down. This circle is a net importer of everything and the rest of the world is a net exporter. The country that is most dependent on the U.S. Navy to keep everything safe and flowing freely is China. Now, people talk about the Chinese having a big Navy, 600 ships. Yes, that is relevant, but only about 60 of them can sail more than 1,000 miles from shore. And that assumes they're going slow and in a straight line to save fuel. In combat conditions, they can only go about 350 miles. At current rates of naval build-out, China will be able to displace the U.S. Navy around the year 2450. <laughs> this doesn't, I don't want to burn a lot of brain power on worrying about this one. But the Chinese do, and they should. Because everything that's going down in the world today from a security point of view is a direct threat to not just their potential rise, but to their very existence. Okay, back to your world. This is total investment into all oil and all gas from all state and all private sources. Back in 2014, at its peak, a narrative took hold in the world's financial capitals. Fossil fuels are done. And since it takes five to 15 years to break even on a project and three to eight years to bring it online, why in the world would you throw your money away when you know that by 2035 it's gonna be gone anyway? 
Now, there's a lot of things about that train of thought that are derailed, in my opinion. But it took hold in Tokyo and Paris and in New York. And overall investment into the space plummeted. Three to eight years to bring a project online. Keep that. Because it's not the same everywhere. Uh, this is one of my favorite graphic sequences. This is what I like to call the checkbook map, because everyone with a dot paid their power bill. Here are the world's conventional oil and gas basins. Pay particular attention to North America and the Persian Gulf, because here's where the shale is. There's a dozen major reasons why U.S. shale is fundamentally different from energy anywhere else and of any other kind. But for today's discussion, this is by far the most important. We produce it where we live and no one else does. You can have a collapse of the global transport system and we're broadly okay. Now, for those of you who are with the super majors and have projects the world over, it's a long and complicated story that really matters upon where you are. But here, it looks pretty good. Also, three to eight years to bring on a conventional system. Here, it's like three to eight weeks for a shale well. Now, I realize, I realize, I realize that's back in 2019, before we have this everything in shortage economy, and now we have shortages of labor and steel and pumps and everything else. Uh, it's more like three to eight months now, but still, order of magnitude better than what everybody else has to deal with. So you know that even if the Ukraine war ended tomorrow, the volatility and the price environment that we're in right now is gonna take a minimum of three years to fix, assuming nothing else goes wrong. There are other positive things. I love this graphic. Okay, so uh, upper Midwest, checkbook map. Biggest concentration right here. Yeah, right there, yeah, see that? Most important city in the history of Western civilization. Marshalltown, Iowa, where I'm from. <laughs> Bismarck, North Dakota. Find yourself in need of a good meal, you're in the wrong spot, you gotta go to Fargo. This is not a rave. It's the back end, and it's lit up because of a problem with transport. You guys are primarily in the shale fields after the oil. Oil's a liquid. Oil's not going to run away from you. You can put it into a pipe, you can put it in a tanker car, you can put it in a rail car, whatever you want. But gas disperses. And so much natural gas comes up as co-production that you have to flare it until the infrastructure can catch up. And so the back end looks like this, the Eagleford looks like this, the Permian looks like this. That means that roughly half the natural gas that is sold in the United States system is sold in as a disposal method. And that changes the price structure and that changes how we use it. Because when natural gas is basically a waste product, you use it for everything. Here's power demand. The blue is the share of US electricity that comes from natural gas. It's exploded since the shale revolution. Why wouldn't it? It was almost free. Here's my petrochemicals map. If you're on the, uh, the bottom left, your crude, bottom right, your natural gas, crude turns into naphtha, naphtha turns into end product. Natural gas gets cracked for the ethylene, it gets turned into end product. Normally, you would only use natural gas to make this relatively narrow product set, butadiene, methanol, because it's the only thing you can use. It's the only thing that will make those products. But in the United States, we've retooled everything. We use natural gas wherever we can. We're the only country that does. And this, this is nitrogen type fertilizer. We don't have a problem. We're expanding our output. 
Europe's already turned two-thirds of theirs off. So we have a potash crisis, we have a phosphate crisis, we have a nitrogen crisis, and next year is gonna suck unless Mother Nature is just incredibly kind again. She rarely does that two years in a row. Now, what this means is between the increase in demand for electricity and the changes in how we do petrochemicals is we've expanded how much natural gas we use, which means that we have now changed the price structure. Here's Henry Hub. Texans, of course, know what this is. These are hurricanes. Storm comes through the Gulf, they shut everything down, they evacuate the rigs, storm passes, you go back out, you spend the next several months repairing the damage. Get a sustained price spike. Until shale came along. By 2009, we were getting half of our natural gas from shale. Every shale well is onshore. We don't care about storms in this part of the industry anymore. And so we had this long stretch of disposal prices. But demand has increased. But more importantly, we have a couple, let's call them exogenous events. Texans, Texans, you know what this is. This is what happened last February when you got cold. Texas does not deal well with cold. My personal favorite were the stories I've heard from the Dallas-Fort Worth area where people were going out with acetylene torches to manually melt the pipes. Oh my God. <laughs> that could have gotten so nasty if we got lucky. And uh, this is what we're all bitching about right now. We have finally, finally breached the 50-year average for natural gas prices. Here's what the Europeans and the Chinese are bitching about. Marginal supplier sets the price. We haven't had a real shutdown in Russia yet. This is just wobbles compared to what's coming. So what's it gonna do here? Uh, here's shale production in the United States stacked up by field. Everything that is below this era, area is um, Stuff we do either on accident or from the Marcellus. So, you know, the Marcellus, the Utica, gas rich, right next to Megalopolis, obviously we're gonna produce natural gas there on purpose. But the rest of it, it's byproduct. And it is expanded because our oil production is expanded. But this is not where the shale sector started. Shale started back in the early 2000s. It was targeting gas specifically, and if you look, if you go all the way back to like, you know, 2005 to 2008, none of the places that we get most of our gas from now were producing gas at all then. We're talking places like the Fayetteville, the Haynesville, the Barnett. It took us about five years to take gas-focused shale tech and apply it to liquids. We are now in the early stages of doing the reverse, because we spent the last 12 years focusing on the liquids. Now we're going to be going back, taking liquids technology and applying it to the old shale gas plays. We're not gonna get there overnight, but we will get there. So the capacity to massively ramp up at today's prices makes a lot of sense. Now I'm not saying we're gonna be at nine or wherever we are today forever. I think a band between roughly four and seven is more realistic, but it's not two, and that means you guys can get to work because the demand is gonna be there because we've already expanded our footprint by half. And if you think LNG was interesting before, oh my God, you guys realize the world we're in right now? Where the Persian Gulf is the low risk supplier? Holy crap. 
It's like every place we've tried to expand to in the last 25 years to diversify it has blown up at the same time, and it's not coming back. So it's the Persian Gulf, and it's you. You and the Persian Gulf. Anyone have a preference? <laughs> okay, let's talk finance. As you get older, you get more money. Your income increases, you get raises as you age, you get more experience, you demand higher payback. And then you turn 65 and it just stops. That last decade before you retire is your peak net worth, peak income, peak savings. Now normally, this wouldn't matter. This is a pre-industrial demographic structure. Children at the bottom, retirees at the top, everybody else stacked up. Normally, it's a pure pyramid because of mortality, which means that when you turn 65, you're a small sliver of the population, and you're replaced by a larger sliver, and so on down the pyramid. So if a small group retires, and they take their money with them, and they cash out of stocks and bonds and go into T-bills, I'm sorry, cash out of, yeah, stocks and bonds and go into T-bills and cash, it's not a big deal, because we always know what the proportion is going to be. It's the same almost every year. It's small, it's minor, it doesn't matter. But... After World War II, the world industrialized, and it urbanized. And in a pre-industrial agrarian system, kids are free labor. You have a whole bunch of them. But when you move into a condo, condo kids become very expensive conversation pieces. Adults aren't stupid. They have fewer. And it changes the demographic structure. Here's ours. Got to go through the generations so you understand what's happening both from a financial and a labor point of view. We have to start with the baby boomers. Largest generation we have ever had. The problem with the boomers, well, one of the problems with the boomers, is that they're retiring. They have dominated our financial and our workforce for decades. When they entered the market back in the 1960s, they supersaturated, they kept labor costs low until now but now they're retiring, and they're taking all of their investments with them. On average, the American boomer retires in the fourth quarter of this year. We know they're liquidating their investments because they've been doing it for a couple of years already. We hit the tipping point in the fourth quarter. We know that between the first quarter of last year and the last quarter of next year, that the cost of capital has to go up by at least a factor of four simply from them removing their money from the markets. That was always unavoidable. We've known this is coming since the 60s. We're finally here. Are you ready? No one is. Gen X, this is my generation. Until recently, we were the smallest generation. Now, when we look at the boomers, we just, ugh. I think the thing about the boomers that disgusts us the most is how they treat their families. Because remember, when the boomers entered the market in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there were so many of them, they pushed down the cost of capital. And that forced a lot of boomers to make the second spouse enter the market as well, to make ends meet. But that supersaturated even more and pushed down the cost of labor even more. That's the primary reason why the boomers have had the highest divorce rate in American history, that financial pressure on the family unit. Xers look at this and say, not us. For us, our time is at least as important as our money. And we have a much higher proportion of single income earning families, and which means that we have a far lower divorce rate because of it. Now, that hasn't worked for us very well until recently because we had you know, a billion boomers out there and 1.4 Xers. So we were the perennial intern generation. We have the, had the slowest uh, recompense generation of any American generation. 
because we just were competing with this massive swath and, and we were the low man on the totem pole. But now the boomers are all retiring. Even if all Gen Xers wanted to work, and we do not, <laughs> there are not enough of us to fill all those shoes, which means that we have gone from the lowest raises ever to the highest in just the last three years. And it's going to last for at least another decade. It's gonna get better every year. Gen Xers, your time has come. And the rest of you can suck it. <laughs> Zoomers, these are my generation's kids. They are not millennials, <laughs> no. Now millennials accurately are believed to be good at managerial skills, good at people skills, they're collaborative, they're social, they're cooperative. These are all very positive traits that is absolutely backed up in the data. That is not Zoomers. The millennials were raised by the boomers to be told they were special and we don't keep track of the score at the soccer game. You can be whatever you want, you can live in the basement as long as you want. No, Gen X did not raise our kids that way. You can't trust anyone. You have to be better, not better than the millennials, better than everyone. You can rely on no one. They're overachievers. But they're also antisocial because they're like, you know, you turn 18, you're out of my house. We're gonna keep track of the score of the soccer game. We're gonna put it in a little book. We're gonna read it to you at night. They're pathologically neuro <sighs> neurotic. They're the most medicated generation we've ever had. They're, they have the highest suicide rate we've ever had. They're antisocial. People talk about the millennials you know, being damaged by COVID because they couldn't be social. For the Zoomers, it was the best two years of their life. No one expected them to leave their room. They loved it. Now, if you want to hire coders who can work remote, this is brilliant. You got a generation to choose from. If you want them to actually show up and speak with you or work in a group, oh my God, no. So not only are they the smallest generation we've ever had, they are the most focused on a very specific niche in the economy for their labor force. So whatever labor problems you think you're having, if it requires them being outside or in an office, you aren't gonna find many Zoomers at all for the next 20 years. Now, of course, then there's the millennials. Now we've talked about some of the positive traits. Let's talk about some of the negative, just to be fair. Lazy, entitled, show up to work at 11.30 on Tuesdays. <laughs> it's all true, that's also backed up in the data. Totally true, for half of them. The other half have always done everything we expected, not expected, wrong word, demanded. They graduated from college a semester early. They didn't go to Europe for 11 years to find themselves, they went straight into the workforce. And because of it, they got screwed. When the financial crisis hit in 08, they were the last people in and so they were the first people kicked out. Whether it's because they did everything right or everything wrong, the average millennial lost three to five years of work experience in their 20s. They will never get that back. They will always be behind. They are the least skilled generation for their age that we have ever had. Now, there's a lot of them, and that's great. But because of that skill deficit, we now have three layers, four layers, to our labor shortage. The boomers are gone. The Xers are insufficient in numbers even if they wanted to fully participate. The millennials are low skilled for their class 
and the Zoomers have boxed themselves in. If there is hope for getting back to where we were in 2019, it still lies with millennials, but not directly. It lies with their kids. A large generation generates a large generation. We have to wait, all we have to do is wait for the millennials' kids to be born, to grow up, to go to school, and enter the workforce. Which means the environment that we're in right now, where we have a shortage of 400,000 workers, is going to increase each and every year until 2032, where it will peak at 900,000. And the millennials' kids will finally enter the market in 2045. That's all we have to do is wait till 2045. Or we can suck it up and find a way to deal with it. Because this is our normal for a good long time. And it's so much worse everywhere else. Here are the big four economies. Let's start with the bottom, the Japanese and the Germans, uh, specifically the Germans. The German industrial system was going to collapse this decade regardless because their workforce is, in, is dying out. The energy crisis simply brings the date forward to the next couple of years. Japan, world's oldest country but aging less slowly, figured out 30 years that they need to automate and to offshore. So the Japanese economy today is about the same size that it was back in 1997. It'll probably be able to hold, but you shouldn't expect miracles. Then we got China. Now you see right here, here are the American millennials. You see that China kind of has that one spike that looks promising. Remember their population is roughly four times the size of ours, so that one spike really matters, if it exists. The Chinese have been updating their data in the last couple of years. They still haven't released their 2020 census because they couldn't believe what came back. They're now starting to believe it. And they now think that they overcounted their population by in excess of 100 million people, all of whom were born since the one-child policy was adopted 40 years ago, suggesting that those yellow bars don't exist at all. If this is true, China is the fastest aging society in human history. That means from a demographic point of view, the Chinese economic model cannot survive the decade. And it strongly suggests that as soon as 2050, the Chinese may have lost 600 million people. I don't worry about China at all. The after effects of China's collapse, that I'm concerned about a little bit. Because it means that the workshop of the world and all its productive capacity could just So China, Germany, the two greatest manufacturing economies in the world are basically going away at the same time. Now, this is a primarily Texan crowd. You're all thinking, oh, well, but what about Mexico? Mexico's great, and Texas has a 30-year head start on everyone else in interacting with Mexico in a cooperative manner. The problem is that northern Mexico, the part that Texans think about, that's only 35 million people. About two-thirds of that labor is already spoken for. So if you're not getting your stuff from Mexico already, like chop chop, you're running out of time. Because you also have to do it in an environment of higher capital costs. All right, here's Mexico. Love it, love it, love it. It's not for everyone. Check this out. Mexico started industrializing in the 90s. Their population structure changed immediately. Now, this is not yet a problem. This is what happened in Germany in the 40s. So, you know, they still have decades before this is really an issue. But it does mean that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it is a train. So, get to it.
Okay, labor costs here are Southeast Asian countries, which I'm broadly positive on. Decent geography, good demographies. Here are our Mexican neighbors, very competitive right in the middle, and there are the Chinese. China is no longer the low-cost producer of anything. It's only the pre-existing sunk cost of the industrial plant, which is why we build things there still. Anyone who is relocated from China to North, North America has discovered lower production costs. Now, I realize you don't move that industrial plant overnight, but if it's gonna die anyway, sooner rather than later. Okay, finally, and then we'll go to Q&A. Here is the CPI, inflation. For the United States and Canada, brother countries, similar economies, inflation tracks. Three big phases. First, that post-war industrialization and urbanization phase. We built skyscrapers, we electrified the countryside, we built interstates everywhere. Industrial demand-driven inflation. The baby boomers. Largest generation we have came of age. Got jobs, founded the suburbs, raised kids. That's the biggest capital expenditure in most people's lives, homes and kids. Lasted for 25 years. And then we had this glorious moment that we all think of as normal. The Chinese poured a billion workers onto the global labor market, pushed down the cost of manufactured goods. The Russian system imploded and an empire's worth of raw materials was poured on international markets, keeping commodity prices under control. All of these trends are either coming back if they're inflationary or going away if they're disinflationary. We have to double the size of the industrial plant, preferably in the next five years. The boomers may be retiring, but the millennials are now at the peak of their consumption. The Russian stuff is going away, and Chinese labor is going away. We're looking at 9 to 15% inflation for a minimum of the next five years, just because of the macroeconomic trend that assumes that government does not screw anything up. If we fail to double the size of the industrial plant, if we fail to expand that refining footprint, that 9 to 15% is our new normal from now on, and we will have product shortages. Or we can all participate in the fastest economic growth in American history to compensate. I have a preference, but I'm not the decision maker, you are. So, okay, if you're looking for a little light reading or something to throw at a neighbor, here are the books. Uh, newsletter is free, it will always be free, but I will warn you, I am a very equal opportunity bubble popper. If you have a sacred cow, I will turn it into a burger. Okay. There's an app, you can throw your questions in there. My understanding is we have some already, otherwise you wouldn't be coming up, right? Okay. Where are we starting? What are the odds that China invades Taiwan? Fairly low. Uh, let's assume for the moment that the Chinese could pull it off. Uh, if you get the semiconductor fab facilities, they don't know how to operate them, so they would just be dead letters. Uh, in addition, uh, you would have a lot of global action. One of, the, one of the big disappointments the Chinese have had with the Ukraine war is that everything that they thought was true for the last 40 years has now been proven wrong. Uh, they've always known that taking Taiwan that would be harder than Russia taking Ukraine because you know there's not a land border, it's not flat, there's a moat. Uh, they thought that the world would do nothing, and if you take the sanctions that the world has put on 
Russia and put them on China. Oh my God. I mean, the Russian economy isn't great, but it is a massive exporter of energy products and food products. China's the world's largest importer of both of those. So you put a similar lockdown on the Chinese system, you're talking about famine in under a year, not to mention a complete industrial collapse. So every plan, diplomatically, strategically, militarily, that the Chinese have been gaming out for a generation, they now know are completely wrong. And this would be the point where normally you would take your smart people and put them in a back room with some beer and some pizza and say, don't come out until I have a plan B. But she has shot all those people. So normally, I would say the chances are zero. But if we're moving into an environment where the Chinese are facing simultaneous agricultural, health, population, and energy collapses, assuming the Americans do nothing, there is something to be said for choosing the time and the place of a patriotic war in order to write the narrative. And if that allows the CCP to remain in power for the low, low price of 700 million dead Chinese, well then okay. So I give it like a one in four chance. We have a couple of questions around uh, India. So do you see India rising to fill China's gap? No. Don't get me wrong, I think India's future is pretty bright. But uh, India is never gonna be able to do the multimodal, multi-step manufacturing that the Chinese are capable of doing at scale. They don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the political capital, uh, they don't have the, the cultural structure. Now, I do think that India will be producing enough manufactured goods within 10 years for their own population. And if you take 1.5 billion Indians and make them a world unto themselves in manufacturing, that is globally significant, yes, but it does not make India a global player. Uh, it is a static, statist economy, and that can work for them, especially in their environment. But being kind of the nerve center for global manufacturing, no. We have a couple of questions around uh, climate. Um, sure. Is that crisis, how does that crisis rank relative to the items that you've discussed today? It's a moving target, so it's really hard to say. Um, getting climate predictions down to like the country and the zip code level, we just don't have the data for right now. Uh, the biggest impact by far for climate shifts isn't gonna be in your industry, in my opinion, it's gonna be in agriculture. Because if you move the bands where you can grow certain crops, if there's no population or infrastructure where the bands move to, oops. Uh, this is a real big problem in the subcontinent, in the Russian wheat belt, and in China specifically. Those are the places where climate is most exposed to uh, potential changes and crops are monocultured in high concentrations in very specific climate bands where if they move, you just can't grow it there. So yeah, we're definitely looking at a big problem there. Um, I also don't think that we're going to see the energy transition though that is necessary to deal with it. Let me deal with that from two points of view. Number one, the technology is not sufficiently mature in my opinion to be applied in most places. Solar and wind only work over about 5% of uh, the Earth's service, so it would be about 15% of the global land service. And for most countries, that is not where the people actually live. So it works in Texas. Dallas-Fort Worth is at the edge of the solar zone. It's at the heart of the wind zone. It will probably be the first major metropolis in the United States to go 100% green, not because there are environmentalists in Texas, but because Texans can do math and they like free. Uh, Omaha will probably be second, Denver will probably be third. You can't do that in Europe. You can't do that in China. And don't get me started on EVs. I mean, I'm, all, I'm a big fan of things with few moving parts, 
but that has to apply to the supply chains to make it too. And the lithium comes from one place and it's all processed in China. So just building the alternate processing infrastructure, and by the way, we'll have to invade Russia too, uh, just to get the materials to do EVs at scale is just laughable for the next decade. Uh, we need a new technological series of breakthroughs in material science before that is possible. Can you elaborate on the opportunities in the Texas Triangle and the potential growth in northern Mexico? Oh my God, um, you know, that's a whole presentation too. Uh, the Texas Triangle is the part of the United States that is likely to experience the fastest economic growth for the next 30 or 35 years. You've got the population centers, you've got a port, you've got a financial center, you've got low, mid, and complex manufacturing all in one place. You plug in the Mexicans to that, they're already plugged into it. Uh, the biggest limitation we have right now is infrastructure. I, and you have all seen the traffic. Uh, there's no quick fix for that, but you've been working on it for 30 years, you're gonna be working on it for another 30 years. And if you are talking about the United States needing to double its industrial plant, I figure at least a third of that is going to happen here. Biggest challenge is gonna be capital. Texas has cheap land, cheap power, cheap food. That's part of the draw, low taxes, capital. With the baby boomers going away, we have to do all of this in an environment of constrained capital and constrained labor. And one of the things we are going to see is that Texas' success is going to hoover up labor from the rest of the country. That didn't matter 15 years ago because there was plenty of, there was plenty of labor everywhere. Now it's constrained, and a win here now is broadly a loss everywhere else. Now, Texans are like, so? <laughs> I get it. But the political splits we have seen between Texas and everyone else is nothing to what's coming, because we're talking about a Texas that is gonna be experiencing economic growth rates of like a Korean scale while the parts of the country that just can't pull this off are drained. So from my point of view, this is maybe a positive because it means we're gonna be arguing about something besides the culture war. We're actually gonna argue about something that in my opinion matters. <laughs> but it's going to get ugly uh, because success here is no longer necessarily a driver of success elsewhere. If you border Texas and you get sucked in, that might apply. For those of you who are from Oklahoma, I, you, you're becoming a satellite of Texas. The Texans are actually reaching out to you to interface on purpose. This is weird. But the same thing's gonna happen to Louisiana. The same thing is gonna happen probably to Colorado. What contribution do you see from the African continent in terms of global manufacturing horsepower? Oh, manufacturing? None. None, very little. Uh, Africa's a series of stacked plateaus, so just getting the infrastructure in there to access anything is very difficult. And while they do have very high birth rates and a more stable population structure, a lot of that is only possible because they export raw commodities and then import the things that allow them to have a degree of monarchy. You break down global supply chains, a lot of that goes away. And so I think a lot of Africa is going to devolve. And they just don't have the infrastructure or the skilled labor uh, that's necessary to participate at scale. And even if they did, in a more, in a less robust security environment, the connections necessary to make that happen are gonna be very thin. So I think it's far more likely that the North American manufacturing system will start incorporating pieces of South America. We already have free trade deals with Colombia and Chile, for example. Um, but yeah, I'm afraid that Africa really can't be part of that. Now, we might see pieces 
of Africa following the Indian model. I can see Nigeria becoming broadly self-sufficient. I can see a partial reboot of South Africa, but that's for their own domestic markets rather than any sort of international connection. Okay, one final question. So for the capital projects industry serving in, in energy and manufacturing markets, what goods or services are most concerning um, or vulnerable when thinking supply chain and future investment? Okay, our manufacturing in a value-added sense is the top in the world still. Uh, and I see no reason for that to fail. Uh, my biggest concerns are things that are attached to semiconductors that are in that kind of middle tier. We, we can do without the singing refrigerator. Uh, so the low-end chips, we all have to get used to actually hitting buttons as opposed to telling Siri to do something. I think we're going to live with that. But in the middle, the stuff that goes into middle manufacturing, into aerospace, into automotive, that's where the shortage is going to be. So I see us having to build our own damn phones. Now, that's going to take a few years to build out the infrastructure. So if you have an iPhone right now, the new model that's coming out, that's the last one. It's going to take them at least five years to rebuild that supply chain. 94% of the parts come from mainland China. That just goes away. We'll still have the chips. That's the hard part. But we're going to have to rebuild that somewhere else. Uh, on the low end, we're actually really good at that. Our energy and labor situation has, is so robust that we have become the world's primary heavy industry producer, especially in petrochem. You throw in Mexico, that's the middle of the stuff. So it's the things that plug in that make it problematic. Now, this means that we can go through it. That means we can use network effects. And especially in the Texas-Mexico fusion, it looks really promising. But getting from here to there, that's a five-year process. Unfortunately, Americans don't like to build out new industrial plant until the shortage is already here, and that's the environment that we're in today. Thank you, Peter. Okay, thank you all.